Australia in the World is a podcast produced with the support of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. The AAA wants Australians to know, understand and engage more in international affairs. All views expressed are solely those of the speakers themselves. Hello and welcome back to the Australia in the World podcast. As always, you're with Darren Lim from the Australian National University and Alan Gingell, National President of the Australian Institute of International Affairs. Well, today is our last episode for the year 2022, and it's a very special one. We've got a special guest here with us today, and I'm going to pass things over to Alan to offer his welcome. Alan. Thanks, Aaron. Today, we welcome the Honourable Tim Watts, MP, to the podcast. Tim is the Assistant Minister for Foreign Affairs and the Federal Member for Jellybrand in Melbourne's West. He entered Parliament in 2013 and served in a range of opposition roles, including most recently as Shadow Assistant Minister for Cybersecurity and Communications. Before he went into Parliament, he worked in the technology sector for the better part of a decade as Senior Manager at Telstra and as a solicitor in the law firm, which is now called King and Wood Mallisons, where, amazingly, he was a colleague, well, not amazingly, where he just happens to have been, a colleague of Darren for a time. Tim's also the author of two books, The Golden Country, Australia's Changing Identity, and Two Futures, Australia at a Critical Moment, the latter of which he co-authored with the current Minister for Home Affairs, Claire O'Neill. Tim's ancestors arrived in Australia in the 1840s and his wife arrived in Australia from Hong Kong in the 1980s. So in this way, as he's pointed out before, Tim's children are at once both second and sixth generation Australians. Tim, welcome to the podcast. Well, great to be with you, Alan, Darren, a long-time listener, first-time guest. Thank you. Look, let's begin with what you do. The Assistant Foreign Minister is a new role that didn't exist in the, well, in any previous government. And looking at your program, I really don't know how we managed without it. And this is a serious point. It seems like you've been on the road ceaselessly since you uh, began. So could, could we begin by just uh, hearing from about how you and the Minister think about your role? And can you tell us what you've been doing and whether that says something about what we've been missing before? Sure. Well, I think the Foreign Minister's put it best when she says that in our rapidly changing international context, we're in a race for influence. Uh, We're not content to just watch and analyse changes happening around us. We want to actively shape them in Australia's national interest. And we believe that to be influential, we need to turn up. Um, So that's why this role has been created. You know, contrary to appearances and despite her best efforts, Penny Wong can't be everywhere at once. So an additional ministerial role in the foreign affairs portfolio allows us to have a ministerial presence in more places and more influence in the rooms where Australia's international context is being shaped. I mean, diplomats and officials obviously play a crucial role in exerting influence, but a ministerial presence can have a a qualitatively different impact. So at the most basic level, it signals that our system attaches political level um, importance on a relationship or on an institution. And building on this, there are certain issues that you can really only effectively uh, negotiate or agree at a ministerial level rather than between officials. Um, One dynamic in that respect that I've found already is that ministerial visits tend to be forcing events uh, for everyone involved. 
So a ministerial visit can focus minds and focus efforts from people in the respective systems. And I've already seen how arriving in a country can force bureaucracies to bring an issue to an outcome um, in order to meet that, that deadline of a ministerial visit. So since I was appointed, um, I've been able to give bilateral attention to relationships in regions like South America and Africa, where Australia has important interests, not the least of which as important country groupings in multilateral fora, um, but they haven't received a bilateral ministerial visit in, in quite some time. And, and similarly, I've been able to give Australia a presence at, at a range of multilateral fora where you know scheduling demands mean that we wouldn't have otherwise been represented. So G20 ministerial meetings, um, APEC foreign ministers meetings, Organisation of American States, Indian Ocean Rim Association, um, and next month, the African Union annual meeting. I've also been able to give some dedicated ministerial attention to some specific foreign policy agendas like cyber and critical technology cooperation, where I have some background and some interests. So it's been a full slate. Um, you know, in, in the race for influence, I've had my running shoes on. Look, let, let me get personal now just for a moment. The truth is that few of us are ever going to have the experience that you had just months ago. Uh, you wake up one morning and you're no longer... Uh, if I can put it cruelly, the frog of an opposition spokesman, but you become the prince of a government minister. So, you know, we've heard what you're doing, but can you talk about that personal experience? How does your life change when you suddenly find yourself in government? It is one of the great cliches of, of waiting for that phone call from the prime minister after a successful election win. And I certainly have never been as anxious about something in my life. Look, it, it, it's an incredible honour to play any role um, in an Australian government. But I think the opportunity to work in foreign affairs at such a consequential time for a nation, that was particularly exciting. And doubly so to have the opportunity to work for a senior minister with such a, a clear strategic vision and the stature of, of Penny Wong. So it really does feel like a bit of a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be a part of a team that's doing something that really matters for our nation. So on that level, it's just fundamentally a privilege. It's obviously a massive change to your everyday life though from, from in opposition or from being in a domestic portfolio. The travel is unavoidable and brutal. Um, I think I've been home four days in the last month. There's a real physicality to that, constant travel. Um, I, I don't know whether there's a model for this, Darren, but you come to appreciate <laughs> very quickly that, and it isn't very obvious, I think, from the IR literature that all the ministers working in foreign affairs, all the people in those rooms who are trying to be influential are in a pretty constant state of jet lag and exhaustion. Um, and I've sort of felt that personally. So developing personal systems and coping mechanisms for that has been really important. You know, you, you quickly learn how to pack carry-on luggage uh, for a three-country, six-day trip, which is a bit of a logistical enterprise. Tim, one thing that We've noticed on this podcast uh, quite a lot is the emphasis that the foreign minister and you have both placed on the link between national identity and foreign policy. And look, you were doing this well before you took this job. You know, the connection between who we are and how we are seen. I think of the foreign minister's speech in Singapore in July when she said that foreign policy is an expression of national values, national interests and national identity. So it starts with who we are. I think of your excellent uh, speech at Asia Link in August, where you channeled the Indigenous leader, Noel Pearson's framing of Australia as three stories, our First Nations heritage, our British institutions, and multicultural migration. 
Could you elaborate now that we've got you here on a bit more on the link between Australian identity and foreign policy? And why is it that an explicit and authentic expression of our identity is important for the making of our foreign policy, making it effective? Yes, Daryl. Anyone who knows me knows that I'm a bit of an obsessive about Australian identity. It was pretty well the topic of my last book and a through line in the, in the first book that I wrote with Claire O'Neill. I really think it matters. You know, Keating once called it, I think, the, the operating system of a country or, or the software of a country. And I think that's really spot on. You know, I, I love Australia unashamedly and I'm proud to tell our story, um, warts and all, because it's really the prism through which we understand ourselves shaping what we do and how we do it as well as the prism that the rest of the world sees us through shaping the way they think about us and the way they engage with us so projecting modern australia as you say the three stories that make us one that noel pearson talks about i don't think it's just a touchy-feely thing or a you know pointless perpetual seminar as howard called it i think it's a way of really maximizing our influence around the world so there's two aspects of that where we're focused on at the moment our first nations foreign policy which is about centering First Nations voices and practices in our engagement with the world. You know, this really connects us with many of the 90 countries in the world that also have First Nations peoples. And I've seen firsthand that it changes the way these countries see us in this engagement. You know, I saw this really powerfully on my first trip to South America, for example. The second stream of that, Australia's multicultural character. You know, we have 300 different ethnic heritages amongst our population. 50% of Australians either born overseas or have a parent born overseas. This connects us with every corner of the globe. It gives us a point of commonality with our international counterparts. You know, it, it, it really made a difference on my last trip to India, for example, for me to be sitting across from a minister in the Indian government and be able to say, you know, hey, we have something in common. Um, one in 10 of my voters was born in India too. And then to compare notes on our respective Garba dancing form. Um, <laughs> and on, on a deeper level, have a, have a kind of a cultural discussion, a cultural understanding that you get from being enmeshed in a, in a diaspora community life in your local community that allows you to have a much richer conversation uh, with the person sitting across the table from you. So I think this projection of modern Australia and our modern identity really needs to be actively cultivated. So otherwise, there's a risk that outdated international perceptions of Australia as a monocultural colonial outpost can prevail and you risk a dynamic where individuals, individual success stories about diversity can be seen as outliers or, or exceptions to our national identity rather than the representatives of who they are. Now, as you know, I like models. And when I think about national identity and its contribution to national power, to use the language of the foreign minister, um, the model I reach for is soft power, you know, popularised by Joseph Nye and the expression of culture and, and values and the impact that has around the world. Now, Having studied and written a little bit about soft power, one thing, one lesson learned is that it's often quite hard for governments to intentionally cultivate soft power. Often it's a bottom-up type process. Um, and when I think about maybe one of the most remarkable aspects of soft power in action since you took government, I think of the personal congratulations that were given by the Prime Minister of Malaysia, Yakub, um, to the newly elected Labor MP and Malaysian-born and raised Sam Lim, sadly no relation to me, for speaking Bahasa Malayu in his first speech to Parliament. That was an organic expression of who we are. It wasn't something that was planned. So I've got a two-part question. What did you make of that? Um, and now that the vision has been set and you've seen, you've explained a bit how it's operationalised in practice, 
What's next? Is there more that we do to incorporate it into our diplomacy and foreign policy? Yeah, well, Sam's speech was magic, wasn't it? I mean, I reckon, as you say, like the organic nature of the first speeches of the 47th Parliament, I think are really the best advertisements you can get for modern Australia. You know, we have new MPs with cultural heritages from Afghanistan, Laos, Sri Lanka, Vietnam, Malaysia. We've got a Kenyan going Indian MP um, who's a, a bogan from Kalgoorlie um, <laughs> and, and plenty of new First Nations MPs too. Really, if you could keep a dry eye while listening to Sally Situ talk about her ama, a, a widowed mother of eight who was a refugee twice over, whose life choices were so constrained by the circumstances of her life, but whose granddaughter is now a member of parliament in our country and is going to use that opportunity to really make some decisions for herself and her community. Well, you're doing better than I was in the chamber. Yeah, look, I heard you speaking at an AsiaLink leaders uh, lunch where you recommended that everyone should watch Sam Lim's maiden speech. And, and you said again that uh, we'd cry when we watched it. And I certainly teared up and immediately uh, sent the link on YouTube to all my kids and uh, everyone I could think of. It was a very, a very moving, but not just in a personal sense, as you say, it was, you know, moving as an Australian to listen to it. Yeah. I mean, Sam's story is particularly amazing. He's a, he's a beautiful human being. Um, and he told a story that we haven't really heard in our parliament much before this year, you know, a story of growing up in a shack with dirt floors, no running water, of becoming a dolphin trainer, <laughs> of taking a vow of silence for a month in a Buddhist monastery and ultimately migrating to Australia, becoming the West Australia Police Officer of the Year, and now a Member of Parliament. The story that Darren was talking about, you know, Sam wanted to thank everyone that had made his extraordinary journey possible in his first speech. And as he put it, that meant that he needed to give thanks in three languages, in English, Mandarin, and Malay. He also spoke Hokkien in the speech, by the way. I thought that was an extraordinary advertisement of modern Australia. So as Darren was asking what's next, I thought, well, let's capture this moment in our parliament and project it out into the world. So I, I tweeted out a video grab of him speaking extensively, actually, in those three languages. And it ended up going viral on Malaysian Twitter, thousands of retweets, uh, was viewed more than 1.2 million times. Prime Minister weighed in, Malaysian senators, literally thousands of Malaysians engaging in this conversation about Sam's speech. People in our region who were proud to see someone of his heritage succeeding like that, but also sometimes surprised at seeing that diversity in Australia, you know, breaking through those outdated stereotypes. And I think in a historical context, that's interesting, right? Because there's no shortage of memoirs that you read from ambassadors or high commissioners during the White Australia period in the region talking about how that policy made their job more difficult. You know, after the establishment of our high commission, in India, for example, there are multiple reports from Australian High Commissioners in India talking about how difficult that was. And on the other hand, the first High Commissioner from India to Australia was tasked explicitly with, quote, educating the minds of the Australian public so that they could be reconciled with the idea of admitting Indians as migrants on an equal footing with other members of the Commonwealth. So I kind of think about Australia's identity and how we communicate this to the world. It's always been connected to our foreign policy in the region it just hasn't always been connected in a positive way. So now our national identity is an asset that connects us to the world and particularly our region. You know, I think we need to be on the front foot projecting that to our interlocutors. Well, speaking of first speeches, just as I did with the foreign minister, I went back and reread your first speech in parliament, uh, which is back in 2013. And I thoroughly recommend our listeners to give it a read or a watch. 
What jumped out to me was the centrality of ideas, argument, and persuasion in the speech. Now, at the time, you're taking a domestic focus. Um, you're talking about how your political party, Labor, needs to win the battle for ideas amongst the Australian people. But Alan and I have talked about the need for persuasion to play a much larger role in Australian foreign policy. And I know you agree, since you wrote something to this effect in your 2015 book with Claire O'Neill, and I'll quote you here, we need to learn how best to influence other nations through the power of our ideas. As we stand here now looking to 2023 and beyond, what are the ideas that we ought to be looking to persuade our region about? So before we talk about persuasion, let me take a step back for a second and talk about the importance of listening. I know it's a bit of a through line for our foreign policy under this government, but you know, observing from opposition, in my view at least, one area where Australian foreign policy fell down in the past was in seeking to lecture rather than to persuade, you know, doing more notification than consultation. So in the view of the, the new Albanese government, persuading starts with listening, because unless we get that right, even the best ideas with strong mutual benefits risk falling on deaf ears. So with that as a given, the premise of my first speech is really about models of change in Australian politics. You know, I emphasise the importance of progressive movements pursuing durable long-term change, winning centuries rather than just elections, as Philip Gould once put it. So I think in a time when the international environment and our geostrategic context is fundamentally changing um, over the long term, I think the most important idea that we need to persuade the region on is that smaller and mid-sized countries both have a power and a responsibility to shape those changes. It's important that countries like Australia don't fall into the risk of great power spectating, you know, analysing change instead of seeking to shape it. So we take our region and we try and apply that model. Um, we've listened carefully to Southeast Asian perspectives in, in particular, and we tried to articulate a vision for the kind of region that we want to help to build that speaks to the interests and aspirations of all nations in the region. So a stable, prosperous, inclusive, resilient region grounded in ASEAN centrality, a region governed by rules where sovereignty is respected, and importantly, a region where a strategic equilibrium means that countries are able to make their own choices free from coercion. This is a regional order that won't build itself. And importantly, it won't be built solely by the great powers. We all need to contribute to this, listening to each other and working towards a common goal. So we're trying to do this in a, in a number of ways, bilaterally, but also by reinvigorating our engagement multilaterally through ASEAN, but also through minilateral groupings like the Quad, which I kind of conceptualise as trying to build public goods to support regional stability and resilience. I'd also characterise the AUKUS agreement, which is a military acquisition agreement, it's not an alliance agreement, as aimed at acquiring military capabilities that are already possessed by others in the region that will help us to contribute to a strategic equilibrium where countries are free to make their own choices, free from coercion. Tim, you often speak about how your electorate is, I think you say, the most diverse in, in Australia, certainly one of the most ethnically diverse. How do your constituents um, think about your new job? In uh, Two Futures, you wrote about how little Australians think about foreign policy and uh, that we need to commit more time to debating the big picture, and that's certainly been the AAA's purpose for 90 years. But, it's gee, it's a hard ask. So 
Is the public view changing? Your electors sort of excited that you're in this job, or can you excite them about the relevance to their needs of the job you're now doing? Um, it's, it's actually a hotly contested title to have the most <laughs> diverse electorate in the country um, amongst MPs these days. Um, I think, sadly, a, a recent redistribution has, has, has taken the title off me. Look, my, my community and, and the diaspora groups within it are really interested in my role in a, in a granular way, often because you know they, they are directly connected with the countries that I'm, I'm travelling to. So you know, my international trips in particular generate a lot of interest and a lot of free advice. But, but I think that, you know, members of Australian diaspora communities are really no different from any other Australian citizens and that they're particularly interested in the dimensions that, that touch on their own cultural or, or ethnic heritage, but aren't often particularly interested in others. So that they have a similar kind of, I think, uh, less direct engagement with international affairs as, as, as anyone else. In fact, you know, you, you see diaspora politics play out within communities at a local level, but fundamentally, diaspora community members are the same as any other voters. So if I turn up at a church, a mosque, a temple, a Gurdwara, which I regularly do, the first issues people raise with me are still Medicare and jobs before anything else. Again, in two futures, and can I just say, because I think uh, Darren and I have quoted you several in several questions now all aspiring political leaders write your books before you get into office because you're not going to have time to do it afterwards although even as I say that I guess Andrew Lee disproves my uh, my, my point um anyway I think he's written a book while we've been recording this podcast <laughs> yeah that's right yeah. <laughs> Anyway, in that book, you talk about the need for Australia to work harder to address its international challenges and to upgrade our diplomatic firepower and address declining expertise, including in language learning in DFAT. Have your views changed on these questions since you started seeing it from the inside? What are, what are the strengths and weaknesses you now identify in the Australian foreign policy arm of uh, statecraft? I can't say in 2014 when I was writing that book that I envisaged being part of that increased firepower in terms of an additional ministry. But I think since coming into DFAT, I'd say my views have evolved um, from what I've seen on the inside, probably unsurprisingly. Look, I'm really proud of the skills and capability that I've seen in, in DFAT and particularly proud of the skills and diversity um, of the staff that I've seen at, at posts around the world. You know, I've been in Delhi with Hindi-speaking Australian DFAT staffers and in Indonesia where our Bahasa-speaking capabilities were the topic of much envy from the other embassies of international countries that I spoke to at those events. I think on a language front, you know, it's important for us to consider the language capabilities that we need for the next decade rather than in the past. And I know that's something that the department's thinking about. For broader skills, we're considering, again, the capabilities that we'll need to be influential in the future, ready for the challenges ahead. You know, one sphere in my own area of responsibility is in our cyber capabilities. You know, this is a particularly hot area. You know, it, we've just seen it recently in the Pacific, for example. You know, it's, all countries are experiencing this and cybersecurity underpins the security and economic prosperity of our regions. So I'm doing a lot of thinking about how we can ensure that DFAT has the right capabilities to have a conversation about those issues with interlocutors and to be influential. 
one area where I have a particular focus is in strategic communications, you know, how we can best communicate our messages to the world to be influential. You know, in the age of social media, we need our foreign policy comms to be nimble, responsive and digital. You know, modern diplomacy can just as often require good video production skills as cable drafting expertise, but those skills aren't valued in the same way, I think, in our diplomatic system at the moment. Tim, to come back to your travels earlier, uh, you said you'd been to Latin America and to, to Africa, and it's great to hear you going to the African Union um, meeting next year. When the foreign minister joined us on our 100th episode, Alan asked her a question about balancing regional and global interests and made reference to a piece by the Lowy Institute's Dan Flitton, where he had interviewed some of the less well-known ambassadors in Canberra. What insights did you gain about this question of balancing global versus regional on these on these trips? Yeah, well, I mean, it's unsurprising that our strategic interests mean that we'll naturally prioritise our resources and our attention in our immediate region. But I, I did like the way that the foreign minister put it on your podcast. I know she's a listener, so, you know, it, it's, it's good career um, management for me to agree with her publicly on this podcast. <laughs> But, but the way that she, she put it, saying that Australia is not a global power, but we have global interests. You know, we, we, we can't ignore the rest of the world. And, and we haven't engaged in regions like South America and Africa as much as we should in recent years. Partly that's COVID, partly that's prioritisation. So a priority of mine has been remedying that situation, you know, both by trips to country and by creating an, a, a regularisation of engagement with heads of mission in, in Australia on, on my part. You know, African voices, African nations are becoming more influential on the international stage. They're a quarter of UN member states. You know, so if we want to be influential in multilateral forums, working on those global challenges jointly, um, you know, we need to be engaging. We've seen that in some of the work on the, the Russia-Ukraine motions, um, the UN, for example. And, and frankly, we can see it from the, the significantly increased engagement of the great powers in, in Africa in recent years. You know, Wang Yi, Lavrov, Blinken, they're all regular visitors to Africa now, and there's a reason for that. You know, climate change is an area where the threat is global. We need to be acting globally, requires global solutions. I think the, the critical minerals supply chains um, important in both Africa and South America. We can't solve climate change without greatly scaling up the supply of critical minerals to produce the batteries, the solar panels, the electric cars we need. We have great expertise in both the extraction and governance of those sectors. We have a role to play there, I think. And then on trade diversification, you know, like we've talked about the need to diversify Australia's trade interests. And there are big opportunities in a, a very large, growing, young area of the world to expand educational markets, particularly in vet, but also through new educational models like Curtin's campus in Mauritius that a lot of African students travel to in order to study as well as METS and AgTech and those other things that we are excellent at and that they desire. A question about democracy. You've long taken an interest in democracy and the health of Australia's political institutions, and it was a chapter in your Two Futures book. That book was published in August 2015, I believe, and I imagine a point you made then about the risks posed by low levels of public trust in politics and political institutions shaped how you understood and interpreted the events of 2016. I'm talking about Trump's election and the Brexit vote, of course, and perhaps many other events since then, which reflect, I think at the very least, 
some pretty big swings in the trajectories of democratic systems around the world. So a, a two-part question. First, I'm keen for your updated reflections on the types of risks facing democracies as we speak now. But second, now that your brief is foreign policy, I want to quote from the National Intelligence Council's Global Trends 2040 report, which we've talked about on the podcast before, which says, quote, there is an increasing mismatch between the challenges and needs with the systems and organisations to deal with them. The international system, including the organisations, alliances, rules and norms, is poorly set up to address the compounding global challenges facing populations. How does foreign policy even begin to grapple with these kinds of challenges? Oh, look, I'm, I'm an MP first, uh, and I take that institutional role as a parliamentarian really seriously. And, uh, you know, I, I'm deeply concerned at, at the health of our democracy and only become more concerned over time. Um, I know there's a debate in, in foreign policy circles about how much we should emphasise, you know, democracy and, and the clash between competing systems in our foreign policy. But from my perspective, I think that the best kind of democracy promotion begins at home. You know, that's where we need to be focused on rather than internationally is in, in modelling um, how we can strengthen a democracy. In fact, just briefly on the identity point, I think it's a really important point to make in that I don't hide the mistakes that Australia has made in our history when I talk about Australian identity, particularly on issues of race. You know, we, we have made terrible mistakes with respect to Indigenous Australians, with respect to our immigration policies in the past. But to deny those mistakes is to deny our greatest strength as a democratic system, which is our capability to change and to grow as a nation. You know, no one could possibly say that Australia is not a greater country today than when Edmund Barton was debating the Immigration Restriction Act. You know, I, I think it's worth telling that story as a model for the strength of our democratic system, similarly with our Indigenous issues, like talking about the voice department, talking about the Uluru State from the heart, it's an opportunity to talk about the strength of our system and enabling us to confront mistakes, to grapple with them, to try to improve. So I should also say that how proud I was of my co-author, Claire O'Neill, at the National Press Club recently, in another speech that rewards close reading, announcing her Strengthening Democracy Task Force, um, which is looking at not just those specific issues that we know well about foreign interference, mis- and disinformation, but also looking at the big picture of democratic resilience, how we can promote social cohesion and institutional trust and develop a practical agenda to improve the health of our democracy. Things are a bit trickier internationally, obviously. While institutions are built and sustained by their members, not all nations share our values or the objectives um, that we have for the international system. That can constrain some of the things that we can do, encourage us to sort of drill down to a lower level, level of shared objectives, shared values. But as Foreign Minister Wong has said, you know, we're genuinely committed to reforming, say, the UN. Part of that commitment means, well, we're committed to the UN, and if we're committed to the UN, it means reforming the UN, I think, now to keep it vital. You know, we've argued for a more representative Security Council calling, for example, for permanent representation from Africa, where many of the issues being dealt with by the Security Council currently sit. And I can tell you that that message is fundamental when you're having conversations with African interlocutors. It comes up all the time. Um, and it's part of the message that we're taking when we're running for a seat on the Security Council in 2029-30. You know, we want to say we're doing that because we're, we're modernising. As I say, we're trying to build new institutional architecture internationally beyond that. 
you know, the quad, I think is important for building public goods. I think we, our view is that to respond to the new challenges we're facing globally, it's better to do that working in conjunction with other nations. And the Quad, I think, is a really positive agenda of four democracies working together to support a region as a whole, on healthcare, climate change, humanitarian assistance, disaster relief, on those real fundamental existential challenges of our time. A question, I guess, on process. Just this week uh, in sort of reviewing the foreign policy of your government for the, since you took office, Alan noted the cohesiveness of the Albanese government's foreign policy. Everyone is sending the same messages, speaking in relative harmony. And I'm sure it's much messier under the surface. It, it always is. But you know, I didn't think it was possible necessarily to do this. We're not Singapore after all. Um, and from time to time, I would expect individual MPs to speak up in ways that may not be necessarily fully consistent with the government's approach and government's message. How have you managed so far to ensure that differences between people in government don't become the story for the media? Like, what, is there a process there? Look, I, I'd attribute a lot of the credit to this, to the, the calm leadership of the Prime Minister and the strategic vision of the Foreign Minister. So all of our members, Cabinet and caucus, understand not only that these issues are really important in the current context, but also that they're being thought about and engaged with deeply by government in the long-term national interest. So there's a strategy there to, to deal with them. So as a result, there's a, a strong sense of shared mission, I think. And, you know, broadly, I think there's a, a view that, you know, serious times call for serious leadership. There's an appreciation that more than so than at any other time in, in recent memory, what we say about international issues has real world consequences. That, that's not to say that people don't have differences of opinion, of course, um, but I think we've created an environment where people see the benefits of raising those issues directly in internal forums, where they are being seriously grappled with as part of the, the plan, as part of the strategy, rather than going to a journalist or sounding off on social media, for example. So we've got internal party forums where people are treated with respect and where they're given the appropriate context for issues, where they're brought in on the strategy and where their views are listened to with respect. And importantly, I should say that that extends across the aisle as well. So in opposition, we called for briefings across the parliament on important issues. And, and I know Alan was at a, a forum where I was participating in with uh, China Matters, where I made that point saying that there needed to be cross-party briefings on these issues to, to lift that common knowledge base. So we've offered that and we've brought back as well, for example, the, the bipartisan trips to the Pacific, because we think you know, in these serious times, it's important that everyone's participating in the debate off that shared level of, um, of, of factual understanding. Uh, Tim, a final question. Any of our podcast listeners who've worked as public servants or, as, uh, or in ministerial offices will know that you're always conscious that there are other strands of thought out there influencing ministers beyond your own uh, briefings. So, you know, ministers have their own ways of understanding the world and sources of advice and reading. Where do these come from for you? How do you ensure that you're not just a captive of your minders, excellent people, though they uh, undoubtedly all are? Um, well, Darren and Alan, you, you both know me well enough by now to know that I've never felt remotely captured by anyone ever. Um, but, uh, of course, diversity of input is, is important in jobs like this. I think in my job, I spend a lot of time on planes um, and there are only so many briefs that you can go through. So I like to read fiction from countries I'm traveling to. So, you know, narrative storytelling is a really important way to understand the history and the culture of a place. 
um, in the way you can't get from a brief or an academic journal. Um, for example, my recent Africa trip, I was reading Damon Golgott's Booker Prize winning novel, um, The Promise. Interestingly as well, I think Darren would like this one. Uh, we also live in a world of streaming where you know, TV production is now crossing borders in a way that just didn't exist in the past. So uh, I was recently at the Indian Film Festival of Melbourne, which is the biggest uh, Indian film festival uh, every year outside of India. The winning film in this year's uh, festival was 83, a film on, on Netflix about the uh, 1983 Cricket World Cup, which is a fantastic film, which Cricket Tragics I highly recommend. It's about three hours long, but it's really engaging. <laughs> um, but, but unsurprisingly... Shorter than a cricket match. <laughs> this was a really useful bit of shared cultural consumption when I recently met with Minister Thakur, India's minister, who's responsible for both sports and broadcast. So that was really useful. I'm an extremely online person, so for better or for worse, I get a lot of content from Twitter, although I steer well clear of Australia-China Twitter, to be frank. I'll throw in a plug for old school RSS readers in the current environment to keep track of content from trusted sources across the web. Podcasts, obviously, are great. Australia in the world is really recommend it to all your listeners. <laughs> um, uh, not just the foreign minister that listens to it. Um, Another newish podcast I'm really loving um, that I'd plug is Dmitry Alperovich's Geopolitics Decanted from the Silverado Policy Accelerator. Dmitry is a well-known, well-regarded figure from the cybersecurity space who's sort of branching out more into geopolitics recently. And finally, I really enjoy reading the cables from the department. It's like having your own personalised edition of The Economist every day, and there's nothing better than a spicy cable from Post. So... Anyone from DFAT that's listening, please keep them coming. I certainly am reading. Well, on that note, Tim, thank you very much for your time today. This was a very wide-ranging conversation, but not on traditional questions of strategy and politics of the day, but important questions like identity, the, the importance of video production and reading novels from countries that you're travelling to. And these are all important dimensions of foreign policy. We believe that here, and it's really pleasing to see and put into action uh, by you and your government. So thanks for joining us and, and all the best for what I'm sure will be an equally busy 2023. Pleasure to join you guys. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> well, that's all for today's episode of Australia in the World. We thank Walter Konagi for audio editing today and Rory standing for composing our theme music. Happy holidays, everyone, and we'll see you in the new year. Thank you.